and welcome back to Wired Podcast. My name is Leonardo Pasquale. I'm the head of training of Wired, a London-based wine training and event company. In this episode, I'm going to chat with Sonia Abai, sommelier at 67 Palmel Media, who is also teaching the Wired Wine Service Workshop and WSET courses with myself. Sonia didn't follow the typical route into the world of sommelier. He worked as an electrician for eight years and went through a quarter-life crisis and found his way into wine. After passing the WSET diploma and getting the CMS qualifications, he is currently a master sommelier candidate. Let's listen to what Sonia has to share. Thank you for chatting with us today, Sonia. There are so many questions I'd like to ask, but first of all, please could you tell us how do you become a sommelier? Um, mine wasn't the typical route into wine, first of all. Um, I've worked eight years as an electrician, so it's slight, slight detour, um, interesting moving to wine. Uh, I went through a quarter life crisis, actually, it's quite funny. So I spent my weekends trying to discover new courses and I landed on a, a WSET level one. And that was really my kind of segue into, into the world of wine. And I just kind of enrolled on subsequent courses. So I think it's a really great way to learn about wine and kind of ignite your passion as well. A few years later, I, I um, signed up to the introductory Court of Masters. So that's an alternative qualification, really focused on being a sommelier. Um, I then moved on to the certified, which is the second step, the advanced that I passed two years ago now. And it was actually um, at the advanced that Ronan Saban, um, who's my current uh, mentor and, and wine director at my um, work at 67 Palmel, gave me my results. And after that, I asked him for a, a role to actually be a working sommelier. So prior to that, those qualifications, I'd never actually worked on the floor. Um, so it's just to, to show that all that is achievable without necessary practical experience, but obviously to kind of shape up for the top level, which is the master sommelier, it does help to have that practical experience behind you. So you are cur- currently a master sommelier candidate, you, which you just mentioned. So c- could you tell us what it really means for, you know, for sommelier? Is it very similar to, for example, as becoming an MW master of wine student or master of wine candidate? Well, there's certainly parallels between the uh, master of wine and master sommelier. Um, obviously, there's um, a great <laughs> deal of knowledge you need to know about the regions, varieties. Um, but where they differ is obviously there's a practical element with the master sommelier. And it really is focused on service. So there's a three-step um, exam for the masters, the, the, the top level of the court masters examination. So the practical stage um, where you get grilled by various master sommeliers, um, you have to serve the wine, decant them, um, asked about um, back vintages of, of, uh, of various wines and the theory. Um, so that's all done orally for the master um, sommelier examination. All the previous exams are all done. They're all written, but this one, you have to sit down in front of master sommeliers and they just grill you about um, oral, um, sorry, theory questions. So in that situation, it's really trying to be representative of how you'd deal with customers on the floor. Obviously you haven't got a pen and paper and scribble down notes when you're dealing with customers. It's really very kind of real life experience of of talking to consumers. Um, And then afterwards there's the, if anyone's seen the film Somme, the kind of legendary tasting exam, which involves tasting um, the wines over 20, 25 minutes. So six wines, three whites, three reds. Um, as soon as you touch the glass, the stopwatch begins and um, you have to break the wine, wines down on 40 different aspects. Um, so it's 
quite unforgiving. You have to get, usually they expect about five out of six right. Um, so it's quite tough. And at the moment, there's only 269 master sommeliers. So it's um, uh, a tricky, tricky exam to, to pass. So yeah, I've got my work out for me. So I, th I think it's also essential to say that um, to have a successful career as a sommelier, um, you don't need to pass the MS qualification or pass any of the, the Court of Masters qualifications. I think it's just a, a natural stepping stone um, and it also grounds you, make, sh make sure that you have the fundamentals that you'll need to be um, a great sommelier, but you can do it in, in other ways. So it's, it's, not, it's not the only route to being a top sommelier. There's plenty of people who have done it other ways. What inspired you to become a sommelier? Um, coming back to my quarter life crisis, um, I was always interested in, in food and fine dining. And it was there that I really discovered food and wine pairings. I, I feel that I've, I've worked in retail before and there was just something missing. It was really the combination that food and wine um, is a natural pairing. And that's where uh, I think wine finds its natural home. So I really wanted to kind of explore that. And it's also, let's be honest, one of the few opportunities you have to actually pop the corks and taste these amazing wines. So it's, you're also a salesman as a sommelier. So I carried over, transfer those skills from, from retail where you're selling to the customer, but you're also managing to kind of share the experience and see their faces light up as they taste and appreciate the wines. So what is the role of a sommelier in, uh, in, in your opinion? <laughs> That's a quite a complicated uh, question to answer. Um, I think fundamentally it's to provide guidance um, for the consumers, for the customers, the diners, um, and put them at ease. So from a business's um, standpoint, you're a sales salesperson. Um, you're there to sell wines, um, promote them, um, upsell, but it's always, always within um, a, a way to, to, you know, not to make the, the customer feel uneasy uh, and feel like they're, they're being pushed to, to, to buy wines that are kind of out of their comfort zone. So I think it's really important to, to focus on you know, their tastes, their preferences, uh, and never try and impose your own tastes on the, on the diners. So that's always um, important. So yeah, never be intimidating or patronizing. Um, and the other thing is being a storyteller. So when we talk about being a salesman, I think that kind of ties in. If you give context to the wine and the food, um, it kind of, you know, improves the, the diner's experience. And um, hopefully they go away, you know, um, with great memories of, of these, these fantastic food and wine pairings for the kind of at least, you know, weeks or months, months in the future. What do you think, in your opinion, the career path for a sommelier, if they wanted to start somewhere, what should they do? Body like the Court of Masters or, or WSET to, to be a sommelier. You can just jump straight on the floor. Um, usually you'll start off as a commis sommelier or an assistant sommelier, move up to a sommelier where you kind of have more free reigns, then the natural progression would be to be a head sommelier, so run the wine list of a particular restaurant. And if you're working in a, in a chain of restaurants um, or a, a restaurant group, then there's potential to be a wine director. But I don't think there's any clear progression because there's very experienced, um, qualified sommeliers, you know, with um, 20, 30 years experience who still want to work on the floor and don't want to detach themselves from the, the kind of fundamentals of, of uh, being a sommelier. Yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a clear, clear progression, although you can kind of move up through the ranks within a, within a restaurant. Since last year, it has been a very difficult year for everyone, especially for those who are working in the hospitality. So in your opinion, what 
2021 will look like for sommeliers? As you said, it's been a, a very, very tough, um, well, year, year or so for hospitality. But I think what it's it's forced is um, kind of imagination, creativity and, and diversification for, for sommeliers, for the role of a sommelier. Obviously, we haven't been able to serve the customers um, face to face. So, for example, at, at my workplace at 67 Powell, I know a few other companies have followed suit. Um, we, we're doing online tastings. So we, we're carrying that on in, in our company. And I think a lot of other restaurants and companies will try to do that as well. Um, whether they move, move on to physical tastings and do more um, kind of in-house um, tastings with, with consumers is, is to be seen. Um, but I think it's something that we need to carry over because there's that skill. We can't just lose it um, and forget about all the great work that's been put in over the last 12 or so months. Um, but the fundamental remains is that, you know, we're there to serve the customer um, and, and be engaging and, and, and promote the wines in person. So that's certainly not lost. And that's still the, the basis of being a sommelier. Is the myth about the second cheapest wine on the menu true? It is a tactic that is employed by most restaurants. So yeah, the, um, the, the myth is, or the, the reality is that the second cheapest wine on the menu does tend to have the highest markup because a lot of people fall into that trap. They don't want to, to look as though they're, they're buying the cheapest wine on the menu because it looks you know, cheap or, or tacky if they're going particularly on a first date. So they, go, they opt for the second most, um, uh, second cheapest. But um, I, I think a, a tip for that is really use the sommelier. If, if you've got a sommelier present or someone with wine knowledge, then make the most of them. That's what, you know, we're here to do. So yeah, I said a, a good son is, is a salesperson, but they shouldn't be forcing you um, you know, into a price range that you're not comfortable with and they should kind of understand what you're looking for and, and your preferences. So, yeah, I think there's a, an easy way around that. Use the song. Don't be afraid to, to ask some questions. And if you could only drink one wine for the rest of your life, what would that be? Um, okay, this is a tough one. I think I'd probably opt for champagne. Um, so it's so a wine I think when I first got into the, in, into the industry, I didn't really appreciate, I didn't understand. It's, it's quite delicate um, and I think it takes some time to really, really, really appreciate the kind of nuances um, and the elegance of champagne. But I think the fantastic thing is, is it's so diverse in a, in a restaurant setting as well. I mean, it's a classic aperitif wine um, before a meal. You compare it with, you know, so many kind of seafood dishes if you have richer um, Pinot Noir based um, Blanc de Noir champagnes as well. Um, they compare with richer, um, heartier, meaty dishes as well. And depending on, you know, where you live in the world, in France, for example, they're not afraid of having dry champagnes uh, for dessert. Um, in the UK, I know, you, I mean, we've got an option of, of demi-sec or, or, or du champagne if you want to pair it. So really you can drink it almost across the meal and it's, um, I think they're so fun and it's always, um, you know, it kind of makes the, the whole experience uh, celebratory as well. So I think it's, it's uh, kind of elevates the whole experience. Which wines are the most frequently requested ordered wine at 67 Palmau? Although we've got one of the largest wine lists in the world, um, they are relatively classic in terms of what we serve. So very kind of Bordeaux, Cabernet heavy, cult wines from the US, so Napa Cabernets. Uh, burgundy both white and red champagne as well 
Um, but we've got, I said, great diversity in the lists as well. So if, if people want to try, you know, quirky wines from Romania or Georgia or skin contact wines, they're all available. Um, and there's so many to taste from uh, by the glass as well. So it's, uh, it's really fun. <laughs> I mean, great, great for the consumer. And it's also great for us to be able to, as, as sommeliers um, in a company, be able to taste so many wines. Uh, which cliches would you like to banish from the wine world forever? Okay, so there's almost too many cliches to name. Um, the, the most obvious one is um, ABC, so anything but Chardonnay. Um, and it was really Chardonnay that I owe so much to because it was that, that a great wine from Paul Pio, uh, it was a Batarmont Rachet, 2011, that really got me into wine, into fine wine at least. Um, but I think when you really delve into a subject, when you're studying for any kind of serious wine qualification, you start to realize that you just can't generalize. It's not possible. There's too many exceptions to the rule. Um, the other thing is, I mean, tying in with, with people not liking or saying they don't like Chardonnay is, is just focusing on, on specific grape varieties and assuming they're not going to like them. I mean, there's so many winemaking decisions, stylistic decisions from the winemaker, um, the climate, cult producers that try and do something kind of quirky, um, natural wines. So, so many possibilities out there that I really don't think you can, you know, write off a grape because there's one or two wines from that, that grape variety that you haven't, haven't enjoyed. And I think a final one that I just find amusing is um, I've heard a lot of people saying whites and rosés for women. And there's this cliche of men liking these kind of full-bodied, punchy reds like Chardonnay du Peuple. And I really don't think you can, you can, you know, recommend a wine for a woman or a man, which I've had to do for in, in retail, um, particularly when you're selling wines. And it just doesn't seem to make any sense for me. Um, so, yeah, I think those are the main ones. What is the most overrated wine on the market right now and the most underrated? I think the most overrated, at least in my opinion, um, this is also probably tying in slightly with my, my preference, but also the prices they go for and the, the height, the kind of high scores they get. But I think Napa Cabernet is, is overrated. Um, not all Napa Cabernet, there are some fa fantastic examples, but when you're spending a thousand pounds or 500 pounds plus on a bottle of Napa Cabernet, in my opinion, they're not as nuanced as some of their Bordeaux um, counterparts. I just struggle with, with the price and the hype that's, that surrounds them. Um, in terms of most underrated, I think you just have to go for the unfashionable wines. So at the moment, we're still talking about fortified wines, even though there's a slight um, kind of renaissance for, for sherry. Um, and port always, well, it's, it's done very well actually during lockdown, um, funnily enough. <laughs> but I think fortified wines and sweet wines are still kind of quite unfashionable. So those are ones I'd, I'd promote. I, I'm a, an absolute Madeira nut, so I, I love Madeira. Those kind of high acid wines, super age worthy, um, in, incredibly interesting to drink. And coming over to the sweets, I think it's not necessarily a lesser known region, but when you consider you can get classified growth um, sauterne for about 30, 40 pounds a bottle, and they're fantastically complex and interesting to drink. And often when I go to um, dinner with, with friends and someone brings a bottle of Sauterne, it's often one of the wines of the night. I think that's another one that you can't ignore. So which unusual grape varieties do you recommend we try? I'm not going to go too kind of outlandish, but certainly grape varieties that I think um, are lesser known and also genuinely 
really interesting to drink. One great variety that I discovered about a year ago that I find really interesting uh, and quite unique is Pella Verga. So it's um, a black grape variety grown in northwest Italy in Piemonte, um, particularly around the commune of Verduno. Um, and there's some great um, producers there. So you've got Burlotto, uh, Castello di Verduno, and Giovanni Sordo that are some of the, the best I've certainly tasted. Um, so it's a, a relatively thin skin grape variety. So it produces lightly colored, um, relatively high acid wines, um, not quite as tannic as, as the um, neighboring grape varieties. So like, like Nebbiolo, it's not quite as tannic, um, but it has this really interesting peppery character that you find in Syrah and also red fruit. So it's a really easy drinking, um, food friendly wine. And I think it's one definitely to, to um, search out. There's a lot of um, interesting old vine um, base as well, um, coming from Chile. So you've got, um, uh, yeah, lots of old, old vine material there and you're getting these kind of rustic spicy wines, really interesting. And one that's probably slightly better known, but I still think it's just really underlooked is, um, Overlook, sorry, the um, Norello Mascalese, I think is, is, I mean, I love the wines from, from Sicily. So you get these kind of high acid, um, not quite as grippy as Nebbiolo, but this haunting kind of florality. And there's so many great examples to taste there. Um, if I'm going for whites, then uh, I think Romorantin is, is a, a quirky grape. So it's only really grown um, in Courcheverny, so in the Loire Valley and there it produces kind of quite taut mineral wines. I think a nice alternative if you want to go for something instead of um, like a muscadet or something, I think is a, a more interesting alternative. Mm -hmm.